0: You're listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. For more information, please visit our website at everynationgta.org. Uh, I'm very happy that we recovered that song because that's the song they used to play when my wife and I joined Every Nation about eight years ago. Uh, and nothing gets you prepped for a sermon as this song. I, I love it. I love it. I hope we keep it. Uh, my name is Lucas. I'm one of the members here. I have the pleasure to continue our series called Unstoppable, where we are going through the books of the book of Acts for the third time. So we split into four seasons. This is season three. And we are going through the miss- missionary journeys of Paul. And I don't know if you've ever watched the, that TV show Lost. I loved Lost when it was uh, broadcast. I think it was mid two thousands. And in that TV show, usually like there was a lot of gaps in the story that were filled with flashbacks. And today is going to feel a little bit like that because we are going through chapter 16, and then I got sick, and then we had to change dates, and Richard was kind enough to swap dates with me. So we jumped to 18, and now we're going to fill the gap. What happened uh, between those two chapters? And I love this passage, so I'm very happy that um, I get to be here today talking about it. So just to get you the context of what is happening in the Book of Acts, uh, to understand, um, uh, yeah, the context, the background here, there is a map showing one of the missionary journeys of Paul. This is his second missionary th- trip uh, through uh, Middle East and Asian, around the Mediterranean. And in chapter 16, two weeks ago, they were at Philippi, at the very top of the map. Uh, and Sheila was preaching about what happened to Paul and Silas when they were thrown in jail at Philippi. And then last week, they magically appeared in Corinth. So there was a lot of things that happened in between that we didn't get to see. Uh, Corinth is... Uh, down at the bottom. And just to give an idea of what happened, so after they left Philippi, they went to these places in Phippolis and Apollonia, and they stopped at the Thessalonica for a good time. Uh, and then they went to the synagogues. They were teaching the Jews about Jesus Christ and reasoning from scriptures to show them that Jesus Christ fulfilled all those messianic promises. But the rulers, the leaders of the Jews in Thessalonica, they didn't really like the message, and they created a big commotion so much so that they had to flee by night to go to Berea because they were afraid of what they were going to do to them. So they go to Berea, I don't know if that's how you say it, but I call it Berea, and they again they go to the synagogues and they start preaching Jesus Christ to the Jews that were uh, attending the synagogue. And those Jews in Berea, they uh, really welcomed the gospel, they liked the message, they were eager to investigate the scriptures even further to see if that was really the case. And then the leaders of Thessalonica got word of that. So they went to Berea to stir up the crowds against them. Um, So they had to shove Paul into a boat, not even knowing where he was going. That's the impression that we get. And just to get him out of there, because I think Paul was the main target from those people from Thessalonica. So Paul jumps on this boat. The boat gets him all the way to Athens, one of the major cities of uh, the Greek people. And when they leave him, uh, the people driving the boat, when they leave him there, he says, you know, when you go back, tell Silas and Th- Timothy that I'm waiting for them here. Funny story, they only meet again in Corinth. But Paul had to wait for them in Athens with almost nothing to do without his missionary uh, battle buddies. So he was, you know, what he did, he went again to the synagogues and the marketplaces and talked about Jesus Christ. But this is a very different place. He's in Athens. Athens was known as the birthplace of Western philosophy and of Greek religion. So Athens was a very different place from those, um, you know, of the Jewish culture where Paul had been so far. I mean, he had been to Greek cities, but Athens was really uh, the epicenter of that culture. So this is the context. So he's in Athens alone, waiting for his friends. And this is what happens in Athens with Paul. This is uh, chapter 17, starting at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities So they, I mean, of course, there was a lot of people working from them. They had like a slave class that would do the chores. So like the people who were living there, they had the, let's say, the leisure to do nothing but to be discussing uh, most, of the, most of the time philosophy because that was big in Athens. So this is the context before then Paul was, you know, going to preach to these people at this place, Dariopagus. But the context is the city that is known for philosophy and known for idolatry. In fact there was a Greek poet who said that it was easier to find a god than a man in Athens. That's how many, you know, gods and statues and shrines and altars and temples they had. So it was a very devout city to those Greek gods and this is the context of Paul's sermon. And this is a sermon that has inspired and taught a lot of people throughout the ages, taught Christians how to make their message relevant to a culture that is very could be can be very strange to the gospel. And then you might think, well, Is it really similar to our case? Because we don't have these shrines and altars and gods and temples anymore. We are not religious. They were very religious. We are very secular nowadays. So it seems like if we are to make the gospel relevant to the people around us, we are, you know, facing a very different battle than what Paul was facing in Athens. But I would argue that we are much, much more similar to the Athenians than it might appear at first. Because... They might have had all those gods that had names, you know, as gods. But we still have our gods that we just don't name them as such. But if you go around the city, you will find that we are just as religious as they were. Our gods have their own temples. We have a picture of a temple here in Toronto for them. They have their own worship services, you No know, raised hands. They have, they demand sacrifices, just like the Athenians' god demanded of them. And even though we made them ourselves and they are just tiny objects, we are very, very devoted to them. And it's really hard to imagine our lives without them. Now, I know this, you know, it's half-joking because not necessarily if you go to a sports event, doesn't mean that you are an idolater or anything like that. But our relationship to these things easily become religious because what was driving the Athenians to seek their gods are the same things driving us to seek these things? Sometimes to give us comfort in life, or to help us achieve success, or to validate us, or to make us accepted in a group, or just to give purpose, meaning, and direction in life. The same religious impulse that they had, we still have, is just that our gods don't carry the name of gods. They carry different names. But the impulse, the drive, our humanity is just the same. And we often can have a religious, relationship with with these things. Now, of course, this matters for us for two reasons. One, because we need to examine ourselves. If we claim to, you know, serve Lord, the Lord Jesus and believe in God as the only God, aren't we sometimes having some kind of religious relationship with these things, putting our hopes on them, staking our happiness on them, seeking them for comfort, for guidance? And also to understand that, well, if we are to make the gospel relevant to our culture, our context is very similar to that of Paul, so we have a lot to learn from what he has to say. So they take him from the marketplace to the Areopagus. So the Areopagus was a, a meeting place. They used to meet in one of two places. One of them was Mars Hill. This is a painting of uh, what it might have looked like. At the background, you see the Acropolis, part of which, uh, which still stands today. And there was a different hill called the Morris Hill where they met. And this was a place in a meeting where they used to deliberate and discuss and even judge criminal cases. But that was a big meeting place where people got together to talk and make decisions. So they bring him there and say, well, let's make this official. OK, now you give us a TED talk about, you know, what is this crazy God that you're trying to introduce to us? And we're going to listen to you and probably judge you and, you know, deliberate and discuss and all of that. And this is what Paul had to tell them, verses 22 onwards. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. He starts with a compliment. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were also Dionysius, the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So, what can we learn from the way that Paul addressed them and what Paul told these people who were so strange to his own culture and to the context where Jesus had been preaching through his ministry as well? The first thing that I think it's very important for us to learn is that if we are to make our message relevant, we need to be attentive to the culture that we need, starting by paying attention to what the each situation calls for. You know, we read uh, in... You can read in verse 2, when Paul was still in Thessalonica, as was his custom, Paul went to the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. When Paul was among the Jews who believed in the Scriptures, who knew the Scriptures, he would reason from the Scriptures. But in fact, he doesn't use the Scriptures at all now that he's talking to the Athenians. On the contrary, he uses some Greek poetry to talk to them. Because these are people with different beliefs, different starting points, And he knows what situations calls for. You know, we see throughout the book of Acts, uh, I'll get to the poetry in a second, but, you know, we see in the book of Acts basically like three major ways in which people come to believe in the message. There is the preaching of the scripture. There are the signs and wonders and miracles that the, the apostles performed. And we see here Paul using good logic, good reasoning, philosophy, and even their own culture to make them think and understand the message of Jesus Christ. It's not only all apologetics, it's not only the power of God to work miracles, and it's not only just preach the message and God will do the rest. Each situation is different. God knows which, what's the kind of light that each person needs to come to Christ. We kind of need to be ready to do all three. Of course, as a body, different people might have different gifts and praise the Lord for that. But we need to be willing to, you know, engage with culture or rely more on God and have the faith to see miracles and be able to wield the word of God when it's called for. It's not only one of the three, it's to be ready, is being ready to do all three of them as Paul was. But what's also very striking is that Paul knew they are poets by heart. Like he could quote two different poems, um, you know, from the top of his mind. When he says, for in him we live and move and have our being, that's in quotes, because that's a poem written by I'm gonna butcher his name, butcher his name, Epimenides or something like that. Um, it was a hymn written to the god Zeus. The Greek poet, poet was saying, "In Zeus we live and move and have our being." And like Poe knew that poem uh, well enough that he could quote and say, you kind of believe in the right thing, but you're just misapplying this to Zeus. Let me co- talk about the God to whom this really applies. And when he says we are his offspring, he's, going, he's citing a different poet uh, named Erratus um, that, again, was not talking about, you know, the God of the Jews. But again, Paul knew, well, what was, where, where was their starting point? What was their beliefs? And this, I think, it's a call for us to engage our culture as well, wisely, of course, but to know, you know, what are the songs? What are the movies? What are the books that people know and believe and are using as guidance in their lives? We need to be wise about it. I'm not saying that you should go and watch everything that your friends watch just because you want to know what they believe in. We need to be very wise because you know we are also shaped by the things that we consume, the entertainment and everything that we consume. But I think this is at least a call for us not to isolate ourselves in Christian silos, uh, you know, reading just Christian books and Christian songs and Christian movies, having no idea what's out there and what is it that people are dealing with. Again, Each person will have to, between them and God, have the wisdom and the maturity to know what to engage with, because again, it's not just everything, but I think we need to engage if we are to reach this culture around us. And in, in fact, it's the other positive of really engaging with and discerning the world is that If we don't know what the world is like, chances are we're being shaped and becoming more like it every day. We need to know what is the culture around us, because otherwise it will shape us in ways that we don't know. But what Paul uses this for, what he uses the Greek poetry for, even though it was very pagan and directed, you know, in worship to Zeus, is that he finds in their beliefs seeds of truth that he can use as the springboard to bring the gospel to them. And this is something that I think we're called to do, to recognize what's in, what in our culture are seeds of truth. And Paul finds basically two, two different, let's say, seeds of truth or hints of truth that he uses to make the gospel known to these people. The first one is the unknown God, uh, passage. For as I passed along, he said, I observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. But what you, Worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. He realized that they were chasing, or worshiping, or hoping for a God that they didn't know, and this is something that we still do today. Haven't we sometimes find ourselves chasing we don't know what? You know, trying this and that, and nothing really satisfies. Or we see that in the people around us that they are they spend their lives chasing they don't know what. They are working really hard to achieve they don't know what. They are trying this and that trying to find in their lives, they don't really know what. And this, what they are looking for at the end of the day is Jesus Christ, because we're made for him. At every modern altar or worship service or every, you know, uh, modern temple, there is some way someone looking for God at the wrong place. And this is something that we need to recognize, that people have this drive, this desire, that only God can satisfy in their lives. They are worshiping an unknown, an unknown God until they know Jesus Christ. And the other point that he uses to as a, as a springboard, again, uh, are these quotes from... Uh, I'm going to get to the quote. I think I probably... I don't know if I messed up the slides, but I wasn't... Uh, let me use this quote first then, because I think it's uh, appropriate in this context. Sorry, Natalie, I'm giving you a hard time today. Can we go back to the quote that I just told you not to put on the screen? Next one. Thank you very much. Uh, we shouldn't be surprised. You know, that people have this drive in them. Because what Paul goes to say is that he made God, made man, from one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the faith of the earth, having determined on allotted, allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek, him, seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. What Paul is saying is almost like, you know, God has given us, given us enough of a sense that he's there, that even in the dark, we can kind of grope our way towards him. We have a feeling, we, kinda, we can hear an echo of a voice that we start looking in the dark to see where it's coming from. And everyone has that in their lives. This is something that Paul recognizes and something that we need to be aware of. As we make the gospel relevant to those around us, they've heard the echo of God's voice and they're groping in the dark until we present them with Jesus Christ. The other springboard that uh, Paul uses to sort of uh, as common ground to make the gospel understood to them is their beliefs about uh, Zeus, in this case, you know, that in him we live and move and have our being and that we are his offspring, because the Greeks knew well that. There must be a reason for us to exist in the first place. Someone has you know, brought us here. Someone made us alive. Someone sustains our existence. And that was something that, well, we, held, we hold that in common with them. And Paul recognized that and, you know, he just wanted to um, affirm that belief. You know, even your own Greek poets teach you that there must be a God behind our own existence whose offspring we are. But he goes on to challenge them, and this is the third thing that we need to know: is that we find these seeds of truth, but we have to challenge the idols of our age. We cannot just leave them there. Paul met them where they were, but he wouldn't leave them there. He went to challenge their beliefs, starting from those that he affirmed. And the thing is, once once you think about it, it might be clear to us today. But those idols don't really make. Since, this is what Paul had to say, verses 24-25. The God who made the world, world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though if he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being, you know, the one responsible for your existence, Is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of men. It might strike us today as like, you know, like weird. Like, how would you, you know, think that, you know, the statue is actually divine? But I mean, it's hard, but we kind of have to put ourselves in those shoes, in their shoes, because this was how people related to those gods and images and shrines. They weren't just images of a Zeus that is out there, but he actually dwelled in the images in the temples and in the altars. That's how their belief system worked. Even like 400 years after this, when Augustine was writing uh, The City of God, a major uh, Christian book in the early medieval age, uh, he was still arguing against the pagans, telling them that it doesn't make sense to think that, you know, the gods who made the heavens and the earth will dwell in the statues that we make. And throughout the entire Old Testament, God is always reminding the Israelites, it doesn't make any sense for you to change me for these things that you have made with your own hands. What's the point? They don't move, they don't talk, they don't see, they don't do anything. Why are you serving them instead of serving me who made everything? I don't dwell in those statues. It doesn't make any sense. Now we've moved away from those beliefs in thinking that these images these little objects are divine but sometimes our relationships with our own gods also don't make a lot of sense now it would you know take a lot of apologetics to do a lot of like you know deconstructing all the different gods that we have in our age um, i think you know if i can recommend one one place to start if that's something that you want to sort of read for yourself and also to explain to others are the books of Pastor Tim Keller, who passed away a couple of weeks ago, um, who had a great way of exposing our gods and exposing the idolatry of our hearts that we still have in this day. Uh, there are two books by him that I would recommend. One is The Counterfeit Gods, and the other one is Making Sense of God, where he finds and, and identifies in our culture and the culture around us, what are these gods that we are worshiping and serving and pursuing, and very importantly, just like Paul did, why it doesn't make any sense to do that? Why do they fail? Why do they never satisfy? Why are they never enough? Why are they false gods after all? And this is something that again we won't have time to do today, but it's something that we need to be ready to do. To find, you know, the seeds of truth in the in the in the lives and the culture around us, but to be ready to challenge people, to find you know the weakness of those gods and how. They cannot compare to the one true God who made everything and who gave us the Lord Jesus Christ, who saved us from our sins. And that's the other thing about um, post challenge to them, is that the news of Jesus Christ is not only news of fulfillment, right? Like that the things that you've been craving for, desiring and pursuing, you don't know what, this unknown God that you kind of want to know, but you don't know them yet. I'm going to present them him to you and you will be fulfilled that's news of fulfillment but there is also news of judgment that we are now responsible for what we do with that message verse 30 says the times of ignorance got overlooked but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this it has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead now it sounds like In our day and age, it's almost like you have good news, fulfillment, bad news, judgment, right? And like we have to give them both. But because of Jesus Christ, the judgment is also part of the good news. First, because we know that the world will be restored and evil will be done away with. But most importantly, because we are not condemned because of the cross. It's offered for free. Salvation from the judgment that is coming, whether you believe in it or not, is offered to you for free. So the judgment is not bad news for us either. In fact, it's even more good news because it means that if we are responsible and accountable for the things that we do, then life matters after all, after all. You know, we live in an age where we don't believe in responsibility and accountability. And at the, end of, at the end of the day, if we're not responsible and you give no account for anything that you do, at one day, we will get to the conclusion that nothing that you do matters. But when you know that you are accountable and responsible, for your actions and your life, then everything that you do matters. Everything, small and great, matters. And we don't have to fear the judgment or fear the responsibility or fear that accountability, but we can rejoice that God gave us the opportunity of being responsible people and yet also the grace, uh, the the gift of the cross so that we wouldn't uh, be condemned. What Paul is saying is that up to now, You have all been groping in the dark, trying to find, you know, where is that voice coming from? Jesus Christ has just turned the lights on. And now on, you have no excuses. You are responsible for what you do in the light in a way that you weren't in the dark. I think that's good news. I think it it means that life matters. And again, because of Jesus Christ, we don't have to fear that responsibility. At the end of the day, it works because it is true. You know, there is a big temptation of, you know, just preaching Christianity because it works. Because it makes it fulfilled. It's better than the alternatives. It's the best of all the gods out there. It's the one that is not going to let you down. So life is going to be better. What Paul is saying is that it is. it both works and it's better than what you're trying to do. But most importantly, it's true. It's true because, and God made that point of proving that it's true by raising Jesus from the dead. We need always to have both as we relate to the message of the gospel ourselves, okay, because there are often the case that if we come to the gospel just because it works for us and then we have a hard time and it seems like something else might work better, then we change the gospel for some other God. We have to remember, first of all, it is true. And that's why it works, because it is true. And as we preach, we need to preach that as well. That The only reason why... Jesus Christ is the one that can satisfy our souls is because we have indeed been made by him and he is indeed the only one that can save us, proven by the fact that he was the only one who rose from the dead. So I just want to finish with a prayer, but before we pray, um, we have a next step card. Uh, If you um, you you want to take a next step in your journey of faith, maybe you've come to the decision to follow Jesus, or you come to a decision where you're pointing your faith where you want to be baptized, or maybe you're new here, you want to be connected to a small group. Uh, We have this card. Oh, actually, if you want to be serving as well, we do need volunteers. Uh, If you want to, you know, serve in the church and help with our ministries, uh, we have that card online. So if you go to evernationgta.org, you'll find that. We have physical ones as well. So we have by the welcome table. Uh, You can fill that, and then we'll contact you with, what can be your next steps? Okay, so let's pray. Lord, we pray and we ask you, Lord, for the discernment to understand the world around us, the culture, ro- Lord, around us. First of all, so that we can be light, Lord, so that we can bring the truth to them. We pray, Lord, that you help us find uh, where have people been hearing your voice, hearing the echoes of your voice, Lord, so that what they are worshiping as unknown, we can help them Get to know, Lord, get to know you who can satisfy their souls. So we pray, Lord, for the boldness, for the courage, for the wisdom, and the grace, Lord, to challenge those around us so that they will leave behind, Lord, the days of darkness and they will rejoice in the light of your Son, Jesus Christ. In the name of. You. You've been listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. Thanks for joining us. For more information, visit our website at everynationgta.org.